0: Our scripture lesson this morning is taken from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, starting with verse 32, and we have been working our way through Mark for a number of weeks and should be concluded with this study at the end of the summer, and then we'll go into another study in the fall. So as you hear this passage, there will be a number of things that should sound familiar because these are themes that have cropped up before on several occasions. So let me read for you these verses, beginning with Mark ten thirty-two through the end of the chapter, which is verse 52. And they were on the road, going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, you're going up to Jerusalem. And they said to him, Grant to us, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, you, are not, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized, But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John, and Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho, and he he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd. Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside, and when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And then he rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, And followed him on the way. The Gospel of the Lord. In the Gospel of Mark, we have seen Jesus mention a couple of other times what was going to happen to him in Jerusalem. He says it again here in this passage. We see two of the apostles trying to vie for positions of prominence in Christ's kingdom, which is not radically different than what they were doing some verses back where they were arguing over who was the greatest of them as the apostles. And then we see Jesus healing a man who was blind. And we've seen Jesus do this before as well. Heal people as well as healing someone who was blind. So what do we learn from these things, things which we have considered in one way or another before? And we'll get to that in just a moment. But just be aware that Jesus has been on a trip to Jerusalem and they are almost there. Next Sunday, the next chapter, they're entering Jerusalem. So this journey is almost at an end. How many of you have ever taken a road trip with your family? Anybody? Raise your hand. Okay. I had four children. We would take road trips to go different places, to visit relatives, go to Disney World or whatever. And there was sort of a, a sameness to every trip that we would take. We'd get everything ready, make sure all the lights were out in the house, everything locked up, get in the car. And, you know, 30 minutes from home, so I have to use the bathroom. You know, see, can't you wait? No, I can't wait. I've got to go real go so you'd find some place to pull in, and they would run in, and then you'd keep going, and then, so I'm, I'm going to be sick, you know, and this, is there a bag or something like that, you know, for this, for this, And then, you know, just, there's just one thing after another, and then there's always the, you know, are we there yet? How much further? If you're going a long way, like to Seattle, it's, it's a long drive, you know, I can take you maybe two days, driving all day, every day. And I imagine, there was probably Something similar with the disciples. You know, all the church bus, you know, they're traveling along, and somebody in the back, you know, are we there yet? I'm hungry. Let's stop and get something to eat. You know, they, you know, they were walking, obviously, but but it's the same thing. It was a long trip, and Jesus repeated over and over and over, "We're going to Jerusalem, and when I get when you get to Jerusalem, things are going to happen to me." And they didn't. Either didn't believe that or didn't want that to happen, but he says it again. And and I know in English, when we read something over and over and over, it gets tedious. We don't like that. But you need to understand in the Bible, when when things are repeated, there is an emphasis which is there that we need to sit up and take note. And sometimes there will be little variations of difference in each repetition, and here there is... More information which is given. Here Jesus said he's going to be turned over to the Gentiles and, and so forth. He's more descriptive of what's going to happen to him with the spitting on him and the mocking and the flogging and so forth. But he's told them before that he's going to be mistreated in Jerusalem and put to death. And then he will rise back to life. And he says this now to the third time for them. Three times he's told the disciples very specifically what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem. And when I say, what, you know, what, what's the matter with them? Are they brain dead? You know, why don't they understand? Why can't you going to just say once? And they would get it. Well, maybe the brain dead thing wasn't the best way to say this. But, but how many of you with children ever tell your children just one time to do something? They just magically do it. You know, get ready for bed, get in bed. You know, I, hey, I told you five minutes ago, get ready for bed. Come on now, you know, get ready for bed. I'm not messing around. Go up, get in your pajamas, get into bed. And then finally, you know, okay, I'm going to go in the kitchen and get uh, whatever instrument torture we use. And coming back, and then you, you put the edge in your voice. It's not like you're just right on the verge of being a psychopath. And they scurry off and they do what you say. But you told them maybe half a dozen times, right? And even adults. Does your boss just tell you one time, do something, or does he have to remind you because you forgot or didn't understand? And, you know, probably. But we are people who sometimes are slow to have things sink in to us. And so Jesus now says the third time to the disciples, that he's going to Jerusalem, and there he's going to be mistreated, He's going to be put to death, and then he's going to rise back to life. Now, my guess is this was one of those things which was beyond their their comprehension. They didn't understand why he would have to go through all of these things. They believed that he was going to be the Messiah, but their mindset was such that someone who assumes a position of power does this in a different way. And we'll get to that in just in just a moment. But Jesus explains very clearly what's going to happen to him. There are some who would say that God's plan was for Jesus to come to preach. Everybody would rally around him. He would establish his kingdom. And everything would be hunky-dory from that point in time on. But things didn't go the way God had planned. And Jesus was rejected by the Jews and the Jewish leaders And they put him to death, and so God had to scramble around and come up with with an interim plan to, to see how everything's going to work out. Now, we would reject that idea because Jesus said very, very clearly over and over and over again what was going to happen to him. That he was going to go to Jerusalem, and there he would suffer, there he would die, he would be buried, and be raised back to life. So his crucifixion was not something that caught God off guard, but this was part of the plan. If you go back to the Old Testament to passages such as Psalm 22, which you read through, that it sounds just like Jesus' crucifixion, because it was a a messianic psalm that did speak of Jesus' crucifixion. Or Isaiah 53, you read through that, that so this sounds like Jesus being rejected and and killed and so forth. And you say, yes, that's it's a messianic passage. It's a prophetic passage. And so now things are coming to a close and Jesus is almost in Jerusalem and these things are just about to take place, about a week a week after this. Now as you read it says, you know, they were going up to Jerusalem. Now that you may or may not know the geography of of the Middle East, or Palestine, but uh, they're in Jericho at this point. Jericho is about 3,000, maybe 3,300 feet below Jerusalem. So if you're in Jericho and say, we're going up to Jerusalem, you are literally going up to Jerusalem. And so the songs of ascent, which we would read in the Psalms, were songs that the pilgrims coming to Jerusalem for Passover would sing. Songs that they're climbing the road up up to Jerusalem. Also, we probably think of Jericho in terms of what happened uh, under Joshua and the walls fell down, the city was destroyed and everything. It was rebuilt. It was a very, a very beautiful city. It was a very delightful city, a very prominent city. And it was, very, it, was, it was so significant that it was a city that Mark Anthony gave to Cleopatra as a present. And she would go there for vacations and stuff. So it was a pretty nice place. So they're in Jerusalem, rebuilt from the ruins of years before, and as they are coming out of town, some things happen. One of the things which happened while they were in Jerusalem, or while they were in Jericho, was that the apostles, at least two of the apostles, James and John, come up to Jesus. We're told in Matthew that their mother was with them, and it may well have been their mother who was the one who was doing the talking. But the gist of their conversation was, you know, Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask. And Jesus is smart enough to not just say yes, I will. And he said, what do you, and what do you want? And what do you want? And they said, or maybe their mother said, I want one to sit on your right hand, one on your left, when you come into your kingdom. Now the other disciples were indignant when they heard them ask this. Well, remember they had just been arguing not too long ago about who was the greatest, and now here are these two trying to vie for you know the top positions in the kingdom. They don't they don't like that. And Jesus told them this was not his to give. This was something that was in the purview of the Father, and He was the one who would determine who would have those kind of positions in the kingdom. But but He goes on to tell them some things, and it, and really this is what. These three accounts are speaking of about his death in Jerusalem, about positions of prominence or leadership in the church or in the kingdom, and even about the healing of the blind man. The world has a mindset of how things are to happen. And unfortunately, Christians come out of the world, but they don't necessarily get all the world out of them. And we still seem to think that things happen in the church the same way they happen in the world. For instance, Jesus says that the way to to his glory is through the grave. Now a military ruler would say the way to glory is through military conquest. If we read Roman history, the Romans were in charge during this time. We can read about someone such as Octavian, who was a relative of Julius Caesar. In fact, Caesar actually adopted him as his son. When Caesar was assassinated, Octavian went after Caesar's enemies and over a period of time defeated them and secured a position of prominence by defeating the enemies uh, Caesar's enemies at Philippi, the plains of Philippi. Came back, he was made emperor, Later his name was changed to Augustus, Augustus Caesar, Caesar Augustus. One who issued a decree that sent Mary and Joseph to Jerusalem, all of that. But he was someone who was victorious in battle. He conquered his enemies. And he secured a position and reigned a long time in Rome. And that's kind of the mindset that the disciples had, we're going to have this, this little war, we'll come out on top, and then Jesus is going to be made, made king. And we'll kind of jockey to see who's going to be on his right and who's left, and so forth. And Jesus is saying, in, in the kingdom, it doesn't work like that. You, know, you want these positions of prominence, but you have to realize that in the kingdom, the one who is the servant of all is the one who is the leader. Now, I know that they didn't understand that, at least not at this point. I've heard people take this passage and interpret it by saying, churches should look at whoever is the most incompetent, inept, uneducated, uncouth person and make him one of the leaders in the church. If you're the village idiot, you've got uh, a good shot at doing this. And that's not what Jesus is saying. But what he's saying is, in his kingdom, in the church, you know who's going to be a good leader by the one who was a good servant. Now, in our culture, we don't have servants, not like they did in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, servants were, were slaves. They had no... rights of their own to speak of. And their job was to take care of the people who were their masters. So a good servant wasn't was somebody who would shout through the house, hey, it's uh, 4.30, I'm getting up early so I can fix breakfast for everybody. Or everybody's eating, I'm going to clean up, I'm going to go out to the fields and work. Or come back here, I'm getting lunch for everybody. You've eaten, why don't you guys go take a nap? I'm the servant, I'm going to go back out to the fields and do some more work. And No. Anybody ever watch Downton Abbey? You know, what you learn, people who are in service are to do their jobs and stay out of sight. Do their jobs well and stay out of sight. But those jobs that are well done are noted. They're noted and they're appreciated. And so those who are servants in the church are to be people who've shown that they are good leaders. I can think of another church where I served. And we would have work days and different things. You know, in the spring we would kind of have a spring cleaning. We would kind of get the the grounds in order and mow the grass and pull the weeds and trim the bushes. And and then, uh, you know, we would kind of clean everything inside. And, and there was one fellow, his name was John, who would always come to those days, those work days. But he would never do anything. He would just get a chair and sit in the chair. And he'd watch other people pull weeds. He'd watch other people cleaning inside. And he'd say, John, come on, help us. He's like, oh, I just want to just sit here and watch. Now, oddly enough, what he wanted more than anything else was to be one of the officers in the church, an elder or a deacon. And he couldn't understand why nobody would ever nominate him for that position. He was real knowledgeable with uh, theology and everything. But he didn't have the mindset or the heart of a servant, and he was not He was not ever nominated. There seems to be something somewhat innate about churches that we realize that people need to be involved in the life of the church, doing various things that need to be done. And through that, as they have other competencies, they they're going to make good leaders. We remember that in Acts, after Jesus' ascension, as things started to uh, go on, the apostles were spending a lot of their time serving widows. And disputes rose because some groups said, hey, we're not getting as much food as these people and they're getting more desserts than us and they were not very happy. So the apostles kind of got, it sounds like they had a little frustrated. hey, you know, look, we, we're supposed to be preaching and praying and things like that. And we're spending too much time waiting on tables. Anybody can do this. So why don't we select some people, some good people who can take over this work. And they did. they They elected several people. Some of those are mentioned in the the verses to follow, they were were significant people, had a, a good understanding of theology and, and a love for other people and all of that. But they took over that ministry of feeding the widows so that the apostles, who were not above doing that, realized they had a job which was more important to do. So sometimes as churches get going, the people who may well have been very servant-minded and they're elected to an office, say, an elder, they, they now spend their time uh, meeting with people, helping people, doing those kinds of things. They're not always doing the more menial things. Not that they're above that, but those other things other people can do. And they now are free to do things which are, are more important within the kingdom, within the church. Now, Dan Breed is not here, so let me just say something about, uh, about a pastor. And as I've served as a pastor for a long time, I've had, um, I've had different experiences. And one of the worst experiences you can have, and one of the worst ways you can treat Dan, is to think of him as kind of like a hired servant, a hired hand. Hey, Dan, you need to go muck out this barn. Hey, Dan, take these, be able to pay out to the back 40 and feed the cattle. Dan has certain gifts and abilities and a calling which most people in the church don't have. So we need to make sure that he's always able to use those gifts, abilities, in his calling in his ministry to the church. Because a lot of the stuff that has to be done, any of us can do. But in terms of preparing the sermon and, and the other things that he does, those are things which most of us are not able to do. So we want to make sure that he's able to do those things which are are most significant for him because of who he is and the position that he has. Now, I've seen him around here. He's not, um, He doesn't feel setting up chairs or moving things or beneath him. He does that very readily. And I imagine he will continue doing that. But don't think of him as a hired servant that you can just kind of order to do some thing. he has a calling which is which is above that and needs to be honored and respected I don't know that you've done that I'm just saying this, this is a warning don't, don't do that if I see you I'll call you out on that now Jesus is saying that within the church within God's kingdom things operate differently than in the world when someone in the world, someone who was a ruler, gets into a position of power, they use that power to suppress those who are below them so they can stay in power. I believe it's in Luke, the term which is used is they, they themselves as benefactors. They are open-handed. They are generous. And how, what does that mean? It means that they would sell their position of power and your suppression by saying something like, I know I'm taking a lot of money from taxes for you, and you're hurting, but with this tax money, we're going to build this army, which will secure our borders, so no one can invade us, and you will live in peace. Or, I know I'm taking a lot of money from you, you can't buy bread, but uh, and you're complaining because I'm using this money to build these big palaces and have these lavish banquets and everything, but... You have to understand that foreign dignitaries come and we need to impress them and as they eat the good food and see the magnificent buildings, they realize what a great and grand country you live in. And you say, wait a minute, that doesn't sound quite right. But they are benefactors. They are doing things because they know best and they are taking care of you. And Jesus said, don't be like that in the church. Realize that servanthood is the path to leadership, and you never can lose that mindset. As we would look at individuals through the years, and one of my favorite characters in history is Robert E. Lee. And I know he was on the side of the South and all of that, but uh, I'm from Alabama, so you'll have to uh, bear with me on this. But Lee distinguished himself in battle uh, first through the Mexican War and the Battle for Mexico City as he was able to disassemble artillery pieces carry them to the top of a of a big hill, big mountain and from there command uh, supremacy over the low low line areas and so the U.S. Army was victorious in that battle later Lee served as a commandant of West Point was there for three years. Most of his life, he was in the army. After the Civil War, he had lost his wealth. He had lost his property. Uh, Arlington National Cemetery is used to be his land, but they took it from him, used it as a cemetery. Lee took a position as the president of Washington College. Now Lee had worked at West Point for several years. He was a civil engineer by training so the college needed to be rebuilt both literally as buildings were had been destroyed need to be rebuilt and also the college had to be rebuilt in terms of its attendance and Lee was a good person for that because he had a he had an understanding of construction and all of that and because he knew a lot of people around the country a lot of people would send their sons to Washington College for an education, college education. And Lee's grace was seen any number of times as he would deal with students, as he would deal with other people. I don't have time to uh, to go into every story that I could tell, but the one which touched me was someone saw Lee in town talking to uh, a soldier, an old soldier, and as they were about to part, Lee pressed some money into the man's hand, the man thanked him, you know, tipped his cap and Walked away, and the person who saw this exchange asked. He said, "Who was that you were talking to?" And he said, "Oh, that's just a, a, a war veteran who's having kind of a hard time of things, a hard go of things now." So the man said, "Was that somebody who served with you in the army in Northern Virginia, with you different campaigns?" And they said, "No, he fought for the Union." But Lee had a concern for people it's sometimes said that Lee never shed a tear over any of the losses of any of the battles that he was involved in. But there are numerous reports of his weeping over the students at Washington College because they didn't know Jesus Christ. And he had a concern that not only they get an education, but they also come to faith in Christ. Later, after his death at college, was renamed Washington and Lee. So I wonder where the name came from. That's where it came from. Lee would be an example of someone who was not above serving others. One of the customs of that day was that when you went to bed at night, you would put your muddy boots or your shoes outside your bedroom door and the servant would come and take those shoes and clean them and polish them and have them back the next morning when you got up, you'd put those on and you were ready to go. Lee didn't have any money to hire servants. But what he would do, when everybody went to bed, he would collect the shoes and boots himself, go to his workroom, clean them off, and polish them. And I may say, said, well, he was in the Army a long time. He'd know how to polish boots, right? Yes. But the point was, he didn't consider that something beneath his dignity to do. Because he knew that was something that was good to do. Something that needed to be done. And there was nobody else to do it. So he did it. So have eyes that are open to see what needs to be done and see how you're able to serve in this congregation. One of the bad things about taking such a large portion of Scripture is there's more than you can cover in about a 30-minute period of time. Let me just touch on something Because Jesus says that he gave his life as a ransom for many. Now our church has a certain theological position as outlined in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, Hopefully you're familiar with that. So what does it mean to be a ransom? A ransom is a price that's paid to free someone. Or someone is guilty, a price is paid so they'll be released. When Jesus says that he is giving his life as a ransom, that means that he's paying the price which is necessary for sinners to be forgiven, to be set free. Now, in theology, there are various questions that are asked. Well, who is the ransom price paid to? And through years, there have been, been all kind of crazy ideas. But, but the one who holds the ability to cast someone to hell is the Father. And so that ransom price was paid to the Father to turn His wrath aside so that He would forgive sinners and not send them to hell. Now we come to the word many. He could have said all, but He didn't. He said Many. And so another question comes up in theology, which we will I'll just tell you what the issues are, and maybe we can address these another time. Did Jesus die to give people an opportunity for salvation by trusting him? or was his death or did his death actually secure the salvation of people? And the position our church takes is that Jesus death? Actually secured salvation for those who were His, and we recognize that not everybody is Jesus. Jesus's, I think, say that in the possessive. Maybe earlier you talked about hell; those who were cast into hell, they don't belong to Jesus, obviously. In John 10, Jesus says to those Jews who were opposing Him that they were not part of His flock; they were not His sheep. Now. regardless of which of those two positions you take, we kind of wind up in the same position. Some people see salvation and some people don't. But how that actually unfolds and works uh, gets into some pretty heavy-duty theology, which we do cover in one of our lab classes, by the way, on the salvation, talking about salvation. But just uh, kind of keep that in mind that there are issues there, and I would say take heart that he said he gives his life as a ransom for many He doesn't use the word few. Many people will be saved. In the book of Revelation, the Apostle John says that in heaven he saw a multitude that no man could number from every language and tribe and people of the earth. And then we come to the the last section about Bartimaeus. This blind man who calls out to Jesus. He's a beggar. Part of the outcast of society. Not someone who was uh, very welcome in many places. People are telling him to be quiet as he calls out to Jesus. And Jesus says, call him. And so they tell him, hey, take heart. He's calling for you. So the man jumps up, throws off his robe, and, and I don't know if he led to Jesus or knew where Jesus was. He, he makes his way to Jesus. He's calling Jesus the son of David, the same term the children would use when Jesus entered Jerusalem at the time of the triumphal entry, a messianic term. And Jesus says to him, What do you want me to do for you? And almost without hesitation, Bartimaeus says, Rabbi, I want to see. I want my sight. He didn't ask for money. didn't ask for wisdom. didn't ask for any number of things. He just asked for his sight. And Jesus restores his sight. He says he then followed Jesus. He probably went on with him to Jerusalem. One of the things I think we can learn from this is Jesus asks specifically, what do you want? It... It makes you pause and kind of think. Well, what do I want? Think of prayer. Go to the Lord and say, "Lord, you know, bless this service, bless this, do that." But what do we really want to see happen? I. Some of the people I was in school with grew up in uh, Kenya in Africa, and they had stories that would curl your toes about some of the things they experienced and some things they saw. In answers to prayer but one thing which I remember very vividly was uh, one of the men was telling this that there were some missionaries who were traveling from one place to another there was an accident they were way out in the middle of nowhere no quick trip or gas station just around the corner and one of them had a head injury and it was hot and there was swelling that was starting to take place and what they needed was some ice here in kind of central Africa they needed ice and so they prayed having no idea how in the world the Lord would deliver ice to them in that remote location far from any other people in a hot climate but they prayed they said Lord our friend is hurting they're swelling we need ice please provide some ice very specific request. And much to their surprise, a thunderstorm blew up, started to rain, and part of that storm was hail. And so they scurried around and grabbed up as much as they could, uh, could gather and wrapped it in a cloth and put it on their friend's head and, and then were able to make their way to their destination. So one of the things maybe we can learn from Bartimaeus is he could tell Jesus exactly what he wanted Jesus to do. So as we come to the Lord in prayer, let's have that same kind of mindset and be very specific about our request. Lord, please do whatever. And maybe as we see God answer a very specific prayer request, our thanksgiving will be equally as specific as we we have an appreciation for what God has done for us. Let's pray. Almighty God, as we come before you, we do thank you for this passage, for these words. Lord, I know that we've heard very similar accounts before, but I pray that you might impress upon us the, the difference of Christ's kingdom from that of the kingdoms of this world, and that you might help us to take heart In the fact that he is Lord. He is now in a position of glory. Which came about not through military victory, but through the cross and the grave. Father, we thank you for our salvation. We thank you for your care over us. In Christ's name, Amen.